Hi, I'm Lawrence Krauss and welcome to the Origins Podcast. Sabina Hassenfelder is a theoretical physicist, a science popularizer, and also a sometimes YouTube personality and musician. I've known her for some time and I enjoy the fact that she's also kind of a contrarian. Her last book, Lost in Math, for example, talked about the possibility that physics had lost its way being more concerned about ideas of beauty in mathematics than perhaps uh, understanding the real world. I decided to have a conversation with her about that and many other things, about what what motivated her as a kind of mathematical physicist to get involved in science popularization and uh, and how she decided to spend time on her YouTube videos. All of that and more, as well as a discussion about really the, the present and future progress of physics. As always, we don't really agree on on everything, but it was an interesting discussion, and I particularly enjoy her her take, her irreverent take on uh, on many aspects of physics, where she kind of inserts herself as a journalist as much as a scientist in in trying to interview people about science. I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks. Again, for those of you who watch this on YouTube, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel since only a small percentage of the people who watch our videos on YouTube actually subscribe to the channel and doing so will give you more opportunities to uh, get notice of what's going on as well as other other events we may produce with the Origins Project Foundation. And also if you're interested in supporting the foundation another way to do it is by subscribing to the podcast through Patreon which not only supports the nonprofit foundation but also allows you access to these videos without any advertisements. In any case, no matter how you watch or listen to this podcast, I hope you enjoy it. Well, Sabina, thanks a lot for uh, for joining me for this uh, podcast. I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you, as I always do. But uh, uh, I want to talk about a variety of things. But since this is the Origins podcast, I want to start with your origins, which I, knowing you at present, I'm, I'm fascinated by the origins of how you got to where you are. So, um, what what uh, what got you interested in in uh, in science first? What, go, let, let's start with that because you have a number of facets that I want to explore, and each of them is interesting. But let's talk about the physics aspect. I guess it's a fairly boring story. You know, I was always good at math and science things in school, and it was the natural trajectory. Um, I actually originally studied uh, math um, at the university. And the problem with the math department was that they were pretty much broke and they couldn't offer me a job. And they said, go over and talk to the physicists. (laughs) They can need math people. And that's how I became a physicist. Now, what uh, you, you're always good math. Did your parents, what do your parents do? Do they influence you? Did they encourage you? Um, What first, so it was just you went to math because you were good at it. Was it there anything as a young person that that attracted you to math or science? My mother is a now retired high school teacher for math and oh. biology. And oh. uh, <laughs> let's not talk about my father. <laughs> he he <laughs> okay. ran away early, but he had a PhD in something. Uh, in something. Okay. It, it but, was not but, math and not physics. Okay, but so the the some to some extent the role model of your mother was a was a good example and um, uh, encouraged your math. What about, did you read much popular science? Because it'll be relevant for later on, given your writing and, 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 and that. Did that impact on you? Well, 
Actually, no. For a long time, I didn't. I was very interested in science fiction. I read a lot of science fiction. I, I thought space travel is the coolest thing. And, uh, yeah. you know, I got really into this. But uh, it was always on my mind, like, this is just fiction. You know, it's not real. <laughs> um, yeah. And that naturally got me interested in uh, why can't you travel faster than the speed of light? Um, what's with warp drives? Uh, what's with hyperdrives? Um, what's with all this quantum uncertainty business? And that's how I got sucked into <laughs> physics. Well, that's actually, that's good to know. You know, I, as of course, you know, from my book, The Physics of Star Trek, I, I get a lot of people for a year, many years talking to me about science and science fiction. And I, and in my case, I read, uh, you know, science and science fiction. And I was, you know, I watched Star Trek and I watched lots of movies. Uh, but uh, for, it wasn't clear to me what chicken or egg. Uh, it wasn't clear to me that whether I was in science fiction because my scientists were or the other way around. So it's nice to see someone I'll use you as an example when people, and I say that science fiction sometimes sucks people into science, because I'm, I'm never certain about that connection between science and science fiction. About It's clearly symbiotic, but, but um, sometimes I think science fiction gets in the way of people being interested in science because it's so depressing. In science fiction, it's so much more exciting to be able to zip through the galaxy in minutes or, or solve a technical problem on the on the enterprise in an hour when it may take 20 years in real life. So, you know, yeah, I can see that. Um, though in the end, I always feel like it leaves you feeling a little bit empty, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Disappointed about reality. Well, I, I do think that's the point that science fiction really misses all the exciting stuff. That most, the most exciting stuff is the stuff that science fiction misses. I mean, when I was a kid in the fifties and sixties, uh, we were supposed to be on flying cars now and doing all this stuff and you know no one mentioned the internet or any i mean the they for good reason right discoveries are discoveries because we didn't anticipate them so it's not too surprising that science fiction while it sometimes forecasts the future generally it seems to me it doesn't do a good job that the real universe always surprises us more than science fiction and the the, the as i like to say the imagination of the universe is better than the imagination of science fiction writers or even scientists usually which is something we'll get to, in fact. Now, you, you, you also. I want to jump before I get to writing. I want to jump to music. You have so you clearly have some background in music too. Tell me about that. I actually don't. Um, I mean, my mother was insistent that I learned to play the piano, but I was never really good at it. I didn't particularly enjoy it, which had a lot to do with my teacher. It was really, really boring. Uh, yeah. Naturally, I've always liked music. I, I actually I wanted to play drums, but my mother wasn't very convinced that it'd be a good idea. Um, so for for a long time, I was I, I painted in in oil and acrylics, and I made some money oh. with that uh, as a student. Uh, and then I had kids, and <laughs> kids and oil colors <laughs> are not a good combination. <laughs> uh, so I thought, you know, I, I need some other creative outlet. Uh, and so I started doing music. And it, it really started like this. I didn't know anything about nothing. I mean, I had like, I, I know how to read um, uh, notes and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, sheet music. Uh, yeah. But that was pretty much it. So I, theoretically, I knew some things, but practically, basically Wait, nothing. And so you taught yourself, but you clearly must have be musical. I mean, Again, we have a similar background in that regard. I was forced to take piano lessons. And I've actually taken lessons in three different instruments that I can think of. Um, 
and one was the piano lessons, then the mandolin, and then the cello. I want I took up the cello because my daughter was a very good violinist when she was starting at age three, and I tried I wanted to surprise her by one Christmas by doing an accompaniment to Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, which I did do and surprised her, but very quickly she lost interest in me because I couldn't keep up with her. But I, I was so in each of those lessons that I took, my teacher eventually said you know what, you probably should stop taking lessons because <laughs> you're not any good. <laughs> so clearly, you actually, while you didn't like the lessons, you obviously have musical aptitude. You were able to pick it up on your own later on. Well, you know, I, I'm very much someone who learns by doing things. So I just, <laughs> I, I sat out and I just wrote some songs and I had fun with it. I mean, for me, this was the uh, important part. And then, of course, you know, you get some feedback, you learn some new things. I learned a lot of things on YouTube. Like I basically mm -hmm. learned to sing on YouTube. I never took any singing lessons. I tried, oh. but I couldn't find anyone. And then it was difficult to arrange uh, and, and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, and it was the same with the uh, recording uh, computer software that you need. Um, I, I, I taught myself everything myself, um, basically. Oh, that's great. I mean, you know, one of the things I have a little small travel guitar I've been trying to teach myself. So there's hope maybe for me because I, I do love music. I just I just uh, but it's, I've, I've been impressed by your songs. I, I my my daughter one year, well, we spent a year, I spent a year down at Vanderbilt down at Nashville because my daughter was there at school and, and my daughter's very musical. And I told myself I would write some country music songs while I was there, but I never did. One of my, one of my great sadnesses, maybe, but I, one day, maybe a country music song too. But, uh, but uh, it's nice to know that, uh, you know, it's to see one can do these. And that is the great thing about, about to some extent, while the internet has many flaws, you can access information that you could never have accessed before. You can access a lot of misinformation too, which is which is a problem both of us deal with a lot, I think. Anyway, um, I before I get to your writing, I wanna, you, you know, you said, okay, the math department basically told you to go do physics and then you did physics, but you decided to pursue a career in it and it's not an easy thing to do. So walk me through that a little bit. So just, you know, did you ever consider leaving and doing something else? Many times. <laughs> so I, I wasn't at all convinced about this whole PhD thing and also doing a postdoc. And at every step uh, in that series, I considered leaving. Like uh, when I made, so I, I didn't do a master's, but at the time it was called a diploma, uh, diploma. Um, and I, I wasn't convinced that doing a PhD would do me any good. Like, why would I want to do it? <laughs> yes. What's the point? And at this time, this was in the late 1990s. Everyone was doing web design. You know, th that yeah. was the new thing because suddenly everybody wanted to do a website. And I've always been interested in graphics design. Uh, I was good with coding things. You know, I, I that was the thing that um, I taught myself at the time. And uh, I knew a lot of people who, who went into web design and they made good money because there was a lot of demand at the time. And I thought sure. seriously about doing this. And then what happened was that, you know, there were all these uh, professors who were like, oh, you're really good. You should go on uh, doing this and, and, and we'll give you a scholarship. And so they gave me money. <laughs> and then, you know, it, it was very encouraging. 
And it just, okay. it, it, it went on like this, you know, I did my PhD and then they were like, oh, here you have money to go to the United States. And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and then it uh, went on like this, um, right? And then of course you get older and it becomes a little bit more difficult. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, no. By default, you get sort of sucked in as you get stage stages. I, I the nineties was maybe a better. I when I did my PhD it was a time when there were no jobs, so I I kind of did it, recognizing that I that, that I probably wouldn't go ahead and do physics or being an academic. Uh, I I taught myself juggling, and I figured I could drive a taxi. I lived in Boston. I did my PhD at MIT, and then I I figured if I could drive there, I could drive anywhere. And, um, but, you know, it was just sort of, oh yeah, I managed it. Then I managed to get a, a job at Harvard and, and you sort of, man, and at, at a certain time you sort of, you've committed by that point. Um, but it's nice to know there are other options. I was lucky to be able to go directly from Harvard to, a, to, to, to a professorship, but it's kind of like uh, my wife at the time kind of just said it was like the army. I mean, this postdoc thing where you basically have to move from one place to another and you don't really have control of your life. And if you have a life, if you have a family, that can be pretty discouraging moving from place to place. Um, did you already have kids at that point or was it later? Uh, no. So um, after my PhD, I went to the United States and I was there for three years. And then I went to a Perimeter Institute in Canada and uh, then I was lucky to get an assistant professorship. So that was a five-year thing, like uh, mm. not, not tenure mm. track, but five years in Sweden. <laughs> and uh, the Swedes are very family friendly. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I figured going on parental leave wouldn't be an issue. And indeed it wasn't. But the problem was that my husband um, had, he still has, a permanent position in Germany and couldn't move to Sweden. Uh, he would have to uh, give up his permanent position for my yeah. temporary thing, which didn't make yeah, any yeah. sense. Yeah, no. So, um, and I actually, at the time, I said to the director at the Institute, you know, I, I just, I don't know how to do it um, because I, I, how's it supposed to work out? I can't leave my husband alone with the kids. So we had twins, which kind of made it wow. even more difficult. Yes, uh, yeah. and, I, and I can't very well um, come to Stockholm, take the kids, two of them with me. Uh, how's yeah. that supposed to work? And I said, you know, let's just forget about it. You know, I'll, thank you for, <laughs> for the job, but I can't, I can't sort it out. And the guy who was the director at the time said, uh, well, I, I know the problem perfectly well because he had three kids himself and, and uh, he, his family actually lived in a different country. And so he was commuting back and forth. And uh, he said, you know, you just try to be here when you can, uh, but as long as you work, we'll not look at it too closely. And that's what I did. So for, for four years, I commuted back and forth to Stockholm um, and it was terribly stressful, but he kind of just about worked out. <laughs> Well, it worked well. I hope it worked out. Um, Stockholm, Germany is not that. I commuted for five years between the U.S. and Australia with my wife. That's a lot, little longer commute. But so, but uh, well, it's fortunate. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. In Stockholm, you had that building. Nowadays, maybe even it'll be interesting to see whether the pandemic makes that easier or harder. The fact that um, uh, you don't have to necessarily be present. Although you know, it, it is. One of the many misconceptions about science 
is, and I think Einstein is the cause of them, to tell you the truth, is that the sort of, it's done by the, well, by these people in the old cases, what you know, old white men, but, but, but people who are in the middle of the night alone with revelations, but it's really a kind of a community endeavor, at least, and most people don't recognize that. And, and therefore, the, being around colleagues and bouncing ideas is incredibly important, and people don't realize that. Did that was that a problem then commuting in that regard? I mean, I, I don't know what your working style is. Um, I've, all, for the most part, many of my, most of my papers have been uh, collaborative efforts, and 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 that has been an important part of my life, especially then later on with students. What about you? Well, so, you know, if you look at my um, CV, you'd see that most of my papers are single authored. Um, that's partly, I guess, just the way that I work. Um, when I come to some conclusion, I just write it up and then there's the paper and <laughs> that it works for me for some things. Um, but of course, I kind of, I suffered from this lack of uh, interaction. I, was, I wasn't very well integrated at the Institute. Um, you know, I didn't have really anybody to work with. Uh, and of course, partly for this reason, I had also trouble getting funding um, for uh, postdocs and so on. So I actually didn't have any postdocs and no students uh, at the time when I was there. And then it, it haunts you later because you can't show up with the um, experience um, in your CV. And then, you know, people come, oh, you're not supposed to have a student because you've never had a student, basically. Uh, so it becomes yeah. this chicken and egg problem. Yeah, well, it... it you know, it's interesting that you say that. I'm I'm not surprised. In in some sense, if you if you read your book Lost in Math, it's written almost from the point of view of an outsider, even though you're an insider. It's an insider looking from the outside looking in, and so I get the sense, in some sense, that that's kind of been the way you proceed as a scientist. In a sense, you've there's some kind of a level of detachment from from the community or the socialization or whatever you want to call it is that is that realistic or fair to say yeah i i think that that's fair to say um though i also have to add that the book is about particle physics in particular uh, and i kind of left this field so i would say at this time i was already an outsider to that particular field but of course since then i've been doing other things i've been doing dark matter stuff um, quantum foundations. Um, so I'm more integrated into a new community, you could say, at this point. It's also true that, I mean, you, you probably know that I've been writing a blog for, oh God, since 2006. Um, so yeah, that's a, a long time. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, no, longer, for longer that. than I've had kids. And, and so I've had for a long time kind of had this option to go into science writing. Uh, and I've worked at, as a freelance writer for a long time. And so I've always kind of had <laughs> one leg on the writing side and one leg on the research side. Well, actually, that that's a nice segue because I've been putting off talking about your the, the, the other prong, there's science and music and the writing. And, you know, it, it, it is interesting to me that you've had a blog since 2006. So I, I have to say, I mean, obviously, as a scientist, I've been involved in writing and, and public popularization of science for many years, but um, maybe since before, not quite since before you were born, but anyway, um, for a long time. But when young people come to me, I often tell them to avoid, if they're interested in that, 
and they're yeah at the same time they're any good in science they should stick for the science because uh that they should take advantage of every opportunity to to write if they're interested but but if they're good at science the more they can do in science the more the more avenues will be open to them to write and i i would have recommended to any young person not to do a blog it's for their careers goodness the careers but you chose to do a blog in 2006 so maybe you could explain that well so for one thing i kind of stumbled into this accidentally because what happened was that i, I moved to the united states and i had all these <laughs> friends and relatives in germany who would always ask me like how is it over there <laughs> How's it no. going? Okay. And I would have to repeat the same thing like 20 times to different people. And I was like, you know what? I'll write a blog and then I just send the link to everybody. Oh. Uh, of course, that didn't work because they were just insulted, you know, that I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't write to them personally. <laughs> and uh, But I figured out that there were a lot of people who were really interested in my research. You know, they would ask me questions about, I was working at the time, black holes at the LHC, you know, what's going on yeah. with the LHC, particle yeah. physics, quantum stuff, black holes and extra dimensions. Mm. So it was, <laughs> so mm. I got a lot of questions about this. So I started writing more about it. And I guess what factors into this is that the, the way that I learn is that I have to explain it to someone else. And I wasn't teaching. Um, I was a postdoc. And later, I, um, at Perimeter Institute, I didn't have teaching duties and neither in Stockholm. So I kind of, uh, this explaining part of science, which I was missing, I filled this in with my writing. And I just learned a lot from it. You know, um, sure. I, I read papers and I summarized them and I explained to other people what <laughs> what I thought the paper said. And it, it, I think it worked really well for me. Well, you know, I, okay, that's nice. It is true. I mean, I, again, uh, I'm playing devil's advocate for some extent because I, it, it, there are two things that are true. First of all, you don't understand a subject till you've taught it. And anyone who's taught, at least for me, you know, he, he, you learn so much more when you're trying to explain it. You realize all the things you thought you understood that you don't understand. And then almost more so in writing. I mean, one of the reasons I've chosen different topics for my books is to learn as well as to expound. You really, uh, there are things that I really thought I understood well in particle physics, my own field, which I discovered on writing books. I didn't because somehow when you know it, it's all right to say something, to give a lecture and just offhandedly say that. But somehow when it's in print, it has a certain kind of finality that, at least for me, give me the responsibility that I have to really be trying to be accurate and write. And it's a whole different level of understanding, uh, writing something down for the world. And, and um, yeah, so it's a wonderful way to learn uh, writing. But it does take time away from, you know, from, well, there's two things. It takes time away from work, research, and you know, I, I've, I'm. People ask me why I did it and done it all, all along, and I say I don't have much choice. It's just, it's just the way I am. I, I if I'm not, if if I, if I'm not doing science, I kind of feel like I'm a fraud. If I'm not writing about it, I kind of. Often I write when I'm angry, anyway. But but so for me, it wasn't much of a choice. So I didn't have a a plan. It just evolved and it worked out. Uh, I was influenced by writing when I was a kid. And so it was nice to be able to return that favor. But, but people often say, hey, it takes time out. But also from a professional perspective, and maybe because you're in Europe, this isn't such a big deal. But uh, it would be seen, writing a blog as a young person might be seen as a black mark if you were trying to get a tenure track faculty position 
in the United States. And, and there are people I know who haven't gotten tenure track faculty positions because I've written blogs uh, and, and they spent more time doing that. So, but maybe it wasn't such a deal in Europe. Well, well, for one thing, I wasn't in Europe at the time. But when you started, was... but were you planning to stay in the States? Did you think you might have a trajectory to stay in the States and go to, to do a faculty job? Or I assumed you always planned to come back to Europe. Well, I, I'm not sure. I was at the time, I was fairly open. Uh, in the end, you know, <laughs> I, was, I, I lived in California. I was in Santa Barbara. First I was in Arizona, yeah. then I was in Santa Barbara. And I have to admit that I've always found California kind of creepy you know they basically they sit on this huge volcano uh, and they have an earthquake every other day and I was like yeah so I, I don't think I want to live in California but at the time I really liked it in the United States um, and so I don't know if if something had popped up maybe I would have taken the opportunity but it's just not the way that it panned out um so but of course i mean i i know the warnings <laughs> that that you mentioned um you know you shouldn't never leave anybody with the impression that you're doing anything besides research <laughs> right um but i i guess i'm just not good to listen to warnings well it's clear that you don't you like to not listen and that's a good thing um yeah no i mean you know and even when i mean even if you're successful when i was a professor already and writing books, but pe there's somehow, you know, Carl Sagan would say that in those, or people wrote about that, that somehow people don't use, take you seriously if you're, if you're, if you're spending time popularizing. It was more so, much more so, I, I would say, in the 80s when I started writing. Now I think it's a different story. Uh, but then there was a, there was a sense that you weren't a serious scientist if you, deign somehow to talk to the unwashed masses and um but it, but that's de definitely changed uh, uh, in fact i think that some people feel like unless you write something popular now you you know it's a problem if you're not a scientist i don't know how do you feel about that well um you seem to think it's better in europe but actually i, I think that at least in germany it's somewhat worse uh because here it's more like you're not supposed to write a popular science book until you're kind of close to retirement so if you do it when you're young, they think you're kind of out of research. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I've I've certainly gotten this, you know, people asking me, oh, so now you're now doing science writing, uh, right? Assuming that I'm done with research. And yeah, I mean, what can I say? I, I, I Basically, I don't care. I mean, I just mm -hmm. think it's, I, I do my thing and <laughs> that's it. Well, it, it was certainly that way. When I was an assistant professor at Yale, I wrote my first book and, um, you know, it got, it got, attention and you never also it's hard to know i mean i think it there definitely was a sense that maybe you know you, you, among some I, I was working a lot and I, my science was going well but still you get the sense that you're not maybe taken as seriously and then to some extent there was also concern that your colleagues if you if you get more attention than they do for your popularizations there's some kind of i don't know when to use the word jealousy but there's some kind of back reaction in that regard uh that that people that people who aren't who are just doing research some somehow kind of present that in that sense do you do you ever do you sense that as well oh yeah certainly uh, i'm pretty sure there are a lot of people who hate it <laughs> that i'm quite popular <laughs> and well, take and great pleasure <laughs> in that yeah well you know then that living that's okay then it, it, you should enjoy that that that, that sense 
but I think it's it's evolved now. It almost seems like people, everyone seems to. I'm I'm, I'm surprised at how many people want how many scientists now want to try and write books. I used to tell people if you if you're in it for the money, don't do it because the the dollar per hour rate is you're going to get back for, unless you're very fortunate and you know and I have been, but I, and some people are, but but it's not. Um, but it's really amazing how many people seem to be wanting, feeling the, the need to write now. And I don't know what, what the motivation for that is. Yes, like everyone I know is writing a book or has written a book. And it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, well, any, you know, I suppose it, you know, it's, it, maybe it's a good thing in the end. Now, let, look, let's, okay, so you, and you, had you written before your blog? I mean, again, I'm only asking because if I think of myself, I always wrote. I used to do history before I did physics, and 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 I generally usually wrote when I was angry, whether it got published or not. Just to, I'd write, and then I and then whether I just put it aside in a in a drawer or tried to send it somewhere to publish or something. At least my mind was clear, and I can then focus on other things. But so I'd I'd written from the time I was a student. But what about you? Yeah, I've uh, I've always written, you know, even when I was in in primary school, you know, I used to write stories, <laughs> and okay. uh, I I, later, I I tried to write uh, novels like at least two or three times, which didn't really go anywhere. They were really terrible, and <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, I, I had some practice, uh, I guess. It kind of, I suppose, it just comes naturally to me. Good, good, and then did the. But and your blog, you know, I want to get to the science in a minute. But I'm fascinated by this sort of progress, and I put it in perspective when I read when I read your book and 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 have known you. But um, the um, am I correct that for at one point maybe this was just a way of supporting yourself? You offered to consult and 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 for fifty dollars at a time, and then you ended up having so many people ask you had a a staff of four or five or something that did that turn out to be lucrative and and what was your experience with that well it wasn't really something that i ever intended to live from it was more like um i was temporarily unemployed because you know there was one grant which had run out and i was waiting to hear about some other grant and meanwhile you know i was just sitting there having no income which is kind of bad if you have rent to pay and and i was trying to figure out you know uh, what can i do with a phd in theoretical physics and Put your uh, shingle out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, and then, yeah, I mean, as you certainly know, there are lots of people who are like really, really interested in physics, but they don't have the background. And they, they're looking for someone to explain to them how to do physics, basically. Uh, and I thought, well, that's something I can do. Uh, I wouldn't do it voluntarily without being paid but if you give him me the money well fine you know ask me some physics questions and i'll do my best to answer it uh, and that's something that a phd is good for and mm -hmm. yeah so so i announced this on my blog uh, and i i got quite a lot of requests and i talked to them for some while but then eventually <laughs> another grant came through And so I just didn't have the time anymore. And what I did at this point was I asked around, you know, I was like, you know, you're a postdoc, you want to make a little bit money on the side. Um, would you be interested to talking to people for certain um, payment? And so I, I wouldn't say that I really recruited people, but I made mm. a, a list to uh, whom I would pass on uh, inquiries. And at this point is actually being handled by someone else entirely. 
It's still continuing. It people continue. It, to do it, it still goes on, uh, but it so the requests no longer go to me, but go to I, I would say the most reliable person that I've been working mm. with, uh, and uh, he recruits people and he you know um, asks like what do you want to talk about, and then tries to decide who's the best person to forward um, the request to. No, you know there is, you're absolutely right though. There is a real craving for people to be able to hear from. As my one of my first editors said, from the horse's mouth, they really want to be able to talk to people who were, and and hear from people, and that's one of the reasons I got involved in in doing a lot of TV early on is because people like it, and you know it's funny because the people who get in the way of often of scientists communicating to the public are editors, whether it's whether it's written editors or media people, TV people who somehow don't realize that people are actually fascinated by science. It amazes me how little TV media people realize what a craving there is. Now they try and satisfy it by producing a lot of science fiction nonsense, but but um, but they don't seem to realize that it's actually marketable and, and and that people really want. There's certainly not everybody, but there's a subset of people who are really craving. And you read so much about it in the newspaper, and you really don't know what to believe. Just really craving hearing from someone they might think is sort of an authoritative source. It's uh, it's fascinating to me. It's uh, uh, there really is an interest, and 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 I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that people are still uh, that your little enterprise is continuing. Um, uh, uh, we, we at various times when I in my professional life we've created programs where people could a- ask a physicist or whatever. Didn't often monetize it then because it was an academic thing. Um, uh, but one of the reasons I did started doing public events. And organizing programs, I mean, and one of the things I did besides developing a research program was develop institutes that had public events was precisely because people would, you know, and and, and you've, I think, seen some of them. I mean, uh, we would get 3,000 people coming to an auditorium to hear scientists and, and paying to hear scientists. It's kind of an amazing thing. And again, I don't know whether there's a difference culturally between Europe and the United States in that regard. Just because I get the sense, I've always gotten the sense that in Europe, there seemed to be less of a disconnect between scientists and the public in the sense that it was a career like any other career. It didn't seem to be so different. And and there was a better demographic in terms of the different types of people who were doing it and their integration in the community. But maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Is that, what do you think? It's really difficult to say. So the Germans are kind of, they're very formal with professors uh, and, and titles and, and all that kind of thing. And I've always found that uh, in Germany in particular, there's a big disconnect between the normal person on the street and then the people in the universities with all their titles. Uh, and uh, this is definitely something that in the United States is just much, much better. Um, you know, you kind of feel like they're real people like the professors in the universities you you can you feel like you can actually talk to them um yeah yeah but but when it more generally comes to science communication i don't have a good i don't have a good overview um generally my feeling is that the germans are really really behind uh with social media um most Mm -hmm. of the um outreach public outreach science communication things that i see being done here are local things 
And I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's always yeah. nice. Uh, you have a public lecture, or, um, mm. you know, you have an open day or something, that kind of thing. Um, that's cool, especially to get kids interested. You know, they, mm -hmm. they need to see something real, right? So, something to touch yeah. uh, and so on. Um, but uh, I mean, th there's a whole world out there. Um, people who you can reach uh, through the internet, through social media. Uh, and I just think that the Germans haven't fully understood this. <laughs> yeah, maybe, uh, certainly, maybe Germany's unique case because you're right, the hair doctor professor thing is a real, there, there, there's a big hierarchy. But, you know, I guess maybe we're concerned as I've done and it, it just seemed to me there are lots of, they may not be the at the, the exalted professor level, but there are lots of people doing technical work. And, and I always noticed, it just seemed to me that the, the, if I just looked around me, the people, you know, just seemed like they were more integrated in the community and there were more, there's certainly at the time when I used to do it, there were more women, for example, involved in Europe than there were in the United States in, in science, as far as I could see at the conferences and at just technical engineers, etc. Um, and so I always got the sense that it was a profession like any other, as opposed to something otherworldly, just, to, just doing science or doing technical professions not so much at the, in at the academic level but just doing science seemed less had less stigma attached to it than it did in the united states less nerd quality if you want to call it that but did you was that no you don't agree or what well i i always hesitate to make general statements mm -hmm. about something that you would have to find out with a poll yeah. um you know yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, what what do I know if if I talk to a, a representative sample? Right. Um, I mean, there, there are many things that could be said about it. One thing is that uh, I think that that's that's the difference between uh, Germany and also the UK and the United States is that the 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 Germans and also the British they're kind of proud of their intellectual heritage right yeah. um so that they like to show off with all their you know old really super important people and so on whereas my impression is always that in the united states uh, they're kind of they're trying not to appear too intellectual <laughs> as yeah, if yeah. that was kind of a bad thing and and, and so that that's definitely a, a cultural um difference there um but you know what's what's the impact on science that that's really really difficult to say yeah, no, that's a really interesting observation. I guess uh, I was one point offered up to to be considered doing a position at Oxford to replace Richard Dawkins, and and I wanted to keep a foot in the United States and 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 spend half time at that time. I just started an institute in Arizona, and and spend half time at Oxford. And at Oxford, they said, "Why would you want to be? Why would you want to be in Arizona when you could be at Oxford?" <laughs> and 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 it was that sense. And I realized that we weren't talking the same because as far as I was concerned, the public understanding of science, if you if you didn't have a foot in the United States, in some sense, you were missing out because there was a place with the biggest misunderstanding of science of any place was the United States. But it was that sense of the, yeah, of, of the effeteness or the intellectual quality and or lack thereof, the, the sense of UK versus the US. Okay, well, look, I want to move to... to both your book and science now. I want in a number of look. I want to start. I've enjoyed talking to you, and I and 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 you know when I first saw the book, I thought, okay, I'm sympathetic to beauty and getting lost in math because I've, for some reason, for a long time, I was listed publicly as a as a critic of string theory, for example, um, when all I was a critic of was the hype associated with string theory, 
um, uh, it, it was very well founded. And I wrote a book in some sense about the interest in extra dimensions and, and the long history of it in, in, in physics. But it was the height. But so, but, I, but, um, but it was certainly clear to me at a general, almost, at, well, maybe when you were doing your PhD, there was a time when it was quite clear that there was a new emerging class of young string theorists who viewed anything below the Planck scale as not really interesting. I mean, just the stuff related to phenomena and experiment is just being irrelevant. And I remember I would give colloquia at Caltech, for example, and my friend uh, Ed Witten was there visiting at the time they were trying to recruit him. And before my colloquial, I'd had lunch with him and his string theory young acolytes. And then, um, and then right before the colloquium, they all sort of left the building and asked a friend of mine, a, a well-known particle physicist, it, you know, if it were me. And he said, no, they just don't, if it's, they're not interested in, in the real, in anything having to do with mere phenomena. So that was, they had become mathematicians in that sense. But then I kind of sensed that was waning as the, as the, as the um, sort of the stock in string theory, if you want to call it, sort of began to go down and, and not as severe now. Um, but nevertheless, you know, you, you focused on beauty and I'm wondering what was, what was the real motivator for, for doing that? You can comment what I just said, cause I saw you nodding, but, 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 uh, but what, why beauty? What, what, what was the thing that really irked you? I'm assuming you wrote this because something bothered you. Uh, yes, <laughs> um, that's true. Um, so uh, first of all, you know, to to give people some sense what we're talking about, I think what you say is true. You know, there was um, in in the in the late nineties, so around the time when I finished my uh, diploma, um, this was when all this string phenomenology stuff uh, came up, uh, and it wasn't only strings, but it, there are some related disciplines where they also did this whole story with the large extra dimensions. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and all that kind of uh, stuff. I think it was born out of um, the realization that they would have to make contact to experiment at some point. And that brings me directly to my book, basically, um, because you, you have this idea that you can see string phenomenology at the Large Hadron Collider. How the heck is this supposed to work when all this phenomenology is supposed to be at the Planck scale, which is like 15 orders of magnitude beyond what the LHC can possibly probe? And that was an argument from naturalness, right? Mm -hmm. um, so these extra dimensions had to have a particular size. And if they have this particular size, they would show up at uh, the Large Hadron Collider and it had to be about in the same energy range as the Higgs. Uh, and oh. the argument was this this naturalness thing. And now you, you ask why why did I choose to uh, write about beauty? Because I just felt there were several different arguments that people were making that could all fit under this header, basically. And you know how it goes with books, like you, you need yeah. a running theme. You need a hook. Yeah. Now, but let, let's unpack this a little bit, because for the non-experts, there's a number of terms here that we talked about that that, prop, that a lot of people might not, not know. Phenomenology it's a word I never even heard of until I was a physicist. And, and um, it's, it's really, tr it's basically more or less one can think of it as trying to not only make contact with phenomenon, but basically to explain specific experimental results with theory. I don't know if I'd have a better uh, explanation for phenomenology than that, but somehow that, and often that means it, it used to mean again, and it's changed to some extent, but maybe not that much, but it had the flavor of 
Well, you weren't looking necessarily for a fundamental theory. You were looking for a theoretical explanation. It may not be part of a grand scheme, but you wanted to have a way to calculate and predict and compare with experiment, even if it was ad hoc. Fair to say? Yeah, more or less ad hoc. So as, as you said earlier, I mean, what happened was that you had these people who were looking for the grand theory of everything, the grand unified, whatever, but, and they drifted over to mathematics. And at some point they were so far away that they didn't care about what you could actually measure. And then the phenomenologist said, um, well, we, we don't really know what's with these people. Let's just ignore them. Uh, we'll try to make up a simplified model that we can actually connect to experiment. And the way that I like to explain is that the phenomenology kind of sits between the experiment and the theory and tries to bridge that gap. And uh, how do phenomenological models work? It's exactly what you say. You're not looking for this big, overarching, perfect thing, but you're focusing on some particular thing. You know, you're, you're taking a particular property that the theory might have, and you ask, um, if I add this property to the theories that we already know, what would change? And could I measure it? And how could I measure it? And what's the experiment that we would have to do? And um, th there are just a lot of questions that become much more tangible uh, once you leave behind this idea that everything needs to be perfect. Yeah, in fact, as, as a friend of both of ours, uh, one of the quotes from my friend Frank Wilczek that I do like is, what, is that, and he was not on the string theory background and probably maybe partly resentful of it, but, but said, I don't want a theory of everything. I just want a theory of something. And, and, and I think that the phenomenology is trying to be a theory of something uh, in some sense and motivated by that. And, and you know, it's interesting for me, you, you started in math. I did a degree in mathematics and physics, and it was kind of an epiphany. I did very mathematical physics. And then at some point, actually, it was my PhD exam, the first version of the, at MIT. They have not, an, not on your thesis, but before you can do a thesis, they have an oral exam. And I started getting asked all these questions about phenomena, about which I knew nothing, <laughs> because I was working on what are called fiber bundles and gauge theories. And it was a shock. And it was actually uh, then a, a sort of mentor, later on became a colleague of mine, Shelley Glashow, who said to me, there's physics and there's formalism, and you have to know the difference. And, and that really resonated with me. So when I moved to Harvard, I really, for most of my career, although I've done some pretty abstract stuff, it's... I kind of feel if I'm not in contact with the phenomena, then there's some problem. And, and it's that for me, that sort of kept me honest, at least in my own mind. But interesting to me that you, well, we'll get to naturalness, but I do want to jump back to something you said. Having said all this, you talked about the fact that, that in order to, at the Large Hadron Collider to make contact, there was this idea of large extra dimensions, which maybe we'll talk about. I have a certain how can I say affinity? I thought the idea was ugly as sin. Let me just say, I still do. But um, but I was very happy because my, my student, uh, one of my PhD students, a guy named Raman Sundram, proposed large extra dimensions. And what made me happy is it got him tenure. I thought I still think the idea is ugly. But um, the, the having said that, you'd said that in your early work, that's what you're working on. So... Uh, in spite of the fact that you seem to have the skeptical attitude about it, um, that's what you chose to work on. So I want to I want to ask about that. 
Well, I, I didn't at the time. I, w I wasn't all that skeptical. So um, I, I'd written my diploma thesis on black holes. So I knew everything about black holes and Hawking radiation and that kind of thing. And I was very interested in Kaluza-Klein theory. So I had this uh -huh. extra dimensional part. And then these people came and said, you know, we can do black holes in extra dimensions. And, and uh, you know, my uh, my PhD supervisor was just, you're the person to do it, <laughs> right? So we, we work out exactly what the signature is at the LHC and here's the code. Uh -huh. And, and you put in the math and, and that's how it works. And, and that's what I wrote my um, PhD thesis on. And what happened was that um, I wasn't even thinking very much about the question, like exactly why should these dimensions have this particular size? It, it was just something that people did. Like I read it and I, I put it into my papers. And then I, I went to a conference and I think it was actually the first international conference that I was at. And someone asked me this question, like, why do the extra dimensions have exactly this size? Like, okay, we understand why they can't be any larger because we would already have seen them. But why aren't they tiny? Like, why should they show up at the Large Hadron Collider? And I said exactly what I'd read in the papers. I said, well, that, because that wouldn't be natural. And, you know, the guy was like, ah, oh, yes, like this explains everything. And that was fine for what the talk is concerned. But I went away feeling like really, really stupid because I realized I didn't understand what it, why it should be the case. And then I fell down into a rabbit hole where I was trying to figure out exactly why is this a good assumption? Why is it justified? Where does it come from? And I, and I asked people about it. You know, how do you justify this? And I figured they, they couldn't answer my question. So, and, and I became increasingly uneasy with this whole thing going on because, and at this point, I had already finished my PhD. Um, and in 2004, 2005, so this was after I moved to the United States, I just decided I want nothing to do with it anymore. And um, I actually, I was offered at the time, I, I, I'd almost forgotten about this, but I was offered a very prestigious um scholarship to come back to Germany, which would have been a five-year thing. It's kind of the closest that the Germans get to a tenure track, and it has funding for a whole group and so on. But it would have required me to continue working on this, because that's what I wrote in the proposal at the time. Uh, and uh, to make a long story short, I turned it down because I didn't want to spend five more years of my life working on it. But I, you know, and I was just, and you see this if you look in the archives of my blog, that I was just fascinated, you know, that people believe this. Why do they believe it? You know, if there's no reason for it. And, you know, sometimes I was a little bit nasty and would poke them. Like, can you explain this to me? And just to figure out, no, they couldn't. <laughs> but that's, there's, there's two things there I want to hit, which are fascinating. One is, this is the reason why it's important that people ask questions, even if they're uncomfortable questions. And, and, and it's unfortunate academia now becoming less and less acceptable to somehow offend someone by saying, what, you know, what, well, why are you, you know, what's the point of this? Or does it really have a sound basis? But it causes, it can cause someone. And, and in fact, it was, I was just reading Christopher Hitchens, who basically said that that's a big problem by cutting off that kind of dialogue. You actually don't just the hurts the right, hurt the rights of people who are asking questions, but the rights of people who might otherwise have heard the question and redo their thinking, which is a right, you know, they have a right to be able to sort of be provoked into thinking correctly, and they lose that right. So it was interesting that that question hit you. I, 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 and, and, and it's a wonderful example. I think it's important. Um, 
I mean, R Richard Dawkins gave me a similar example. He was very religious at some point and bought the religious arguments till someone basically said, why, why, why are you buying that? And then it, it caused him to rethink his own basis. And there's a long, I guess, on a, on a more basic level, and I've talked about this often in our podcast, but pedagogically, and I'm sure you'll have seen this if you have students at any level, pedagogically, there's a lot of evidence that the only way to really understand something is to confront your own misconceptions of it. And, 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 and there's some people have so many misconceptions about physics as undergraduates that you can do that. And, but it continues on even at a professional level clearly as well. And it's interesting to me that that had an effect on you. Um, is that the only time that's happened to you? Um, that someone asked a question that made me rethink something. No, it, yeah. it, it, it happens quite frequently, you know, on social media, you know, someone will ask a question, you're like, do I actually know this? <laughs> like, and why do I know this? Uh, and stuff like this. Um, so, uh, for example, one thing which, which I'm still a little bit embarrassed about was um, the measles vaccination. You know, I mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of arrogant German that I am, I always thought that, that Germans are pretty good with vaccinating kids uh, against measles. But when I looked at the numbers, turns out that the at least at the time, which was like five years ago, um, actually, the United States are better vaccinating kids against measles than the Germans. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, okay, so uh, I was wrong, you were right. <laughs> it's nice to be, it's nice. I, it's wonderful to be discovered. I, I think if you have the right attitude, it's wonderful to discover you're wrong. It's a good thing. Most, it's, it's unfortunate that, that we don't train people to, to, to so much enjoy being wrong. I mean, as if you're a scientist, in some sense, that's that's what it's all about, right? Yeah, um, basically, you have to get used to being wrong. Um, yeah, and, otherwise and, and you, you, you can't do science, right? Yeah, it's learning is a process of constantly being wrong until you might be right. But and 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 I don't think people again. That's not something people understand about science. Is somehow is it you know, science is more like. Sherlock Holmes, which is sort of getting rid of all the stuff that's wrong and eventually hoping that that leads you in the right direction. Um, but, okay, a little less philosophical. I want to go back. I'm, I'm kind of amazed, you know, uh, when someone said when uh, the question of naturalness and extra dimensions, because in some sense, nothing seemed, even when I first heard it, nothing seemed more unnatural to me than large extra dimensions. The only reason, the only reason they were considered, there was no fundamental reason why there should be some extra large invisible dimensions, except that it might give you something you could measure at experiment and might be related somehow to constraints to experiment. But that seemed not, I mean, nothing seemed more unnatural to me. Uh, and, and, and I assume you agree with me in that regard. Well, it all depends on what you mean by the word natural, um, we'll which particle physicists have given a very technical meaning to. And there's this whole story that the mass of the Higgs boson uh, is supposedly technically unnatural. Yeah. Um, and to explain why the Higgs mass is so small, you need to bring in a new scale. And that scale was assumed to be the same scale as that of the extra dimensions. To, to this is a little yeah, way, but, 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 it was but, but it was imposing. Way. Yeah, it was imposing. You, you know, you had to make the extra dimensions that scale in order to make the theory quote unquote natural. But there was nothing about the theory that, in fact, Feynman. Uh, you're probably aware of this quote about from Feynman, which I think I probably put in my my book on extra dimensions. He he was a critic of string theory before he died um, in '88 and. 
And he said that it doesn't explain anything. It has to be excused all the time. Namely, uh, it always is basically doesn't the nat quote unquote, if the directions the math drive you in is not the direction the physics would drive you in. You have, so it has to be excused. Oh, sorry. It's these, the, the fundamental scale is much less than you'd see and all these things. And so it always had to, you always had to put in by hand something that would somehow connect it to the real world. And he found it very, very artificial. And I guess I felt I was in good company with that agreement of it, with Feynman. It's interesting how physicists get used to this. Like if you, I think if you come as an outsider, and I see this constantly if I give public lectures and I talk to people who know very little about it, from the outside, it just looks completely crazy. You know, you, you write down the string theory thing, and I know the, the world has 11 dimensions. Um, yes. Okay, so that doesn't describe what we see. So what do we do? Oh, we color them up, so then they're gone. Yes. Oh, it predicts supersymmetry. Oh, we don't see this. So what do we do? Oh, well, well we add some things here and some things there, and and that still doesn't work. And then you add our parity and then you have all these moduli, which should have screwed up cosmology. And what do we do about this? Well, we fudge something together, right? And it becomes more and more difficult. Um, and I think the people who work on it at some point just become so used to it um, that they can't see how artificial the whole thing is and how much it was fudged to <laughs> at least not disagree with what we see. Okay, you yeah, know, I think you're absolutely right. But I want to come, uh, you know, I do want to come back because I don't want to, um, I, I, I don't want to necessarily bury naturalness. I want to praise it, as Caesar might have said, but, uh, or as Brutus might have said. Um, namely, there were, you know, again, from the era, and I'm older than you, but from the era that I come in in particle physics, naturalness, I want to unpack it a little differently than you did. Naturalness pointed to a real problem. It wasn't as if, what it pointed was that there's something you're missing in the theory, and therefore it was very an important phenomenon. And that is, and, and uh, so I'll try and explain my version of naturalness, which is that there, as I've often described, the quantum mechanics and relatively tell you there are virtual particles popping in and out of existence in time scales so short you can't measure them. And on smaller and smaller time scales, which and smaller and smaller distance scales, which means higher and higher energies more exotic particles can appear for shorter times that can have much higher masses and much higher energies. And, and uh, most, and we know that's true. We can measure, we can measure the phenomena of virtual particles. So it's not some hypothetical thing. It's an essential part of our theory, but most of physics works because you could, it turns out the effect of these high energy processes happening on very small scales is irrelevant. But it turns out that there was one area, which is the Higgs particle, where the effects of those extra um, and the scale of the weak interaction, which is set by the scale of this final called the Higgs mechanism, the Higgs particle, that was somehow sensitive to these very high energy phenomena. And therefore, they should be producing effects that we're not seeing. And there and and therefore, the, it is very unnatural to have a scale of the weak interaction in energy, which is very different than, say, the scale of, of quantum gravity. They're separated by 17 orders of magnitude. That's very unnatural. And so naturalness basically set, was, it, was, a, was pointing out a problem that somehow you clearly there must be something you're missing for that huge hierarchy of scales to exist. And... and um, if your theory didn't somehow address that problem, it was kind of unnatural. 
And so it pointed for me, it was a very important phenomenon. It was Gerard Tuft, I think, who I, who I most clearly learned that from. And, and it, it really points out that there's something fundamental we're missing. And I, therefore, I think of it as a very valuable aspect of physics. So, um, but I guess, I guess you view it as something that's now been perverted into something less useful. Well, so, so you said that these high energy contributions would lead to effects that we don't see, but that's not true. They actually don't lead to any effects that we see. Um, that's the that's the entire issue uh, which I have. So uh, what you say is technically is perfectly correct. Like you have this theory and you have the Higgs boson, it's a scalar. Therefore, it has the sensitivity to a scale in the ultraviolet, which is a very high. And that's just a statement about the property of the theory. Yeah. And, but now the question is like, is this a problem that you must fix? And I would say there's no good reason to think that you must fix this problem. Um, that's just an argument from beauty, the way that I put it in my book. It's something that people don't like because they, you know, they haven't seen it before. Why haven't they seen it before? Well, because the Higgs is the only scalar, <laughs> right? So, um, so I see. So let me interrupt for one second. That's fascinating. I, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but because I know I interrupt too much. But, but um, for me, what it... Don't you think it, it tells you that the theory, if 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 it's true, and they don't have any observed effect, doesn't it tell you that the theory is somehow wrong in some way, and that's a very important quantity? Or, or are you saying it's something deeper? The theory can be right, but for reasons we don't know. I mean, for me, it what was exciting is it pointed that out. It's it's highly suggested there's something important we're missing, and I love that. But you're suggesting we may not be missing anything. It just may be a a, a fixation on a on a, a non-problem. Is that is that a better way of paraphrasing exactly, what you think? Exactly. That's, that's what I would say. It might very well be a non-problem. There's nothing wrong with the theory that has this property, um, except you could say it's somewhat unusual, like because the rest of the standard model does not have this property, um, which is correct, of course, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong, that the standard model with the Higgs sector um, is is different. And, and so I think it's, well, a, it's well, a prejudice. I guess so. It, 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 and this may be a little technical for the popular audience, but I want to get to it anyway, I guess. But 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 these virtual particles with, and there could be many more, for all we know, where may be new theories with new heavy particles, they don't have an effect. And if they, and, and, and why don't they have an effect? Because the theory... Because everything we know about particle physics, at least in the current framework, suggests that they should have a visible, a visible impact. So, if the, if there's anything beyond what's called the standard model in physics, you would expect them to have an effect. And there must, if they don't, there must be something we're missing that's stopping them from having effect. But maybe I'm too ingrained in the notion that there's some physics beyond the standard model. And, and you're telling me, well, that just, it, it is a property of the standard model that there are no such particles. Well, the, the naturalist argument actually doesn't really say anything about uh, particles. Um, it has this contribution that comes from the high energy modes, but you never, you never actually observe this. Uh, supposedly it makes a contribution to the mass. Uh, yeah, and then, if, if, and if then just... that, that's, where the naturalness, arguments come, uh, naturalness argument 
comes in is that it would be highly unlikely if this large contribution from the Planck scale was exactly cancelled uh, by some other thing. And, and that's, that's where the argument for naturalists comes in. But mathematically, you can very well just, you know, subtract one constant from another constant. And the, the important point is that they are separately, completely unobservable. The only thing that you eventually measure is the actual mass of the Higgs boson. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and I think this is where, where physicists get confused about like, what is it, what does the mass, what does the math mean? What does it mean that you have these unobservable contributions from something that you can interpret as this kind of thing? And I'm very much the person who looks at what comes out in the end. What comes out in the end is that we have a constant, which we cannot calculate. That's the mass of the Higgs boson. And then we go and measure it. And that's the end of the story. Who cares what these intermediate steps were? Well, you know, but I think it's, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to push this further. Uh, it, it, this unlikely, in order, in any sensible kind of framework that we understand right now, in the framework of four-dimensional physics, for that mass and that for that constant to be that mass to be the constant that's measured, there has to be a cancellation of of numbers at, at, to many decimal places, and. Um, and there, and at least there's no, and I think the argument is that there's no other area of science, there's no other area of science where such a cancellation is observed. And also, the other thing is, is it's stable. Namely, um, if you make a small change in anything, that cancellation will go, will, you have to fine tune things so that the cancellation occurs to, 17 decimal places, and it's very hard to make that mathematically stable, uh, uh, that cancellation. And so that's that at least to me is suggestive that there's something missing. You can say, well, it happens, and if it happens, it happens. And, and the virtue of this theory we may talk about, supersymmetry, was that it appeared to allow such a cancellation in principle to happen in a way that was at least stable, mathematically consistent, that you wouldn't have small corrections that would destabilize that cancellation. So, and then again, I'm not sure if what anything I've said is understandable to anyone who's watching, but at least it's, uh, it's a question I have for you. So that to me, that that cancellation that's required to make it just, to make you accept it and move on to something else is strongly suspicious because you don't observe it anywhere else in science. Thoughts? Well, you're making an argument from intuition, which is exactly the same argument that particle physicists have also made, and it turned out to be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't actually see the six dimensions. They didn't see anything uh, in the required energy range to make the theory natural. So just looking at the evidence, it's just wrong. Um, well, well step, the, step back. Do you, think, do you think that the fact that the LHC has not discovered, say, supersymmetric particles at the scale it has implies that the whole... that, that that this notion that supersymmetry must be broken, namely the difference between particles and their supersymmetric partners the, the, in the mass difference must not be too large. You think that is now proven to be wrong? My sense is that there's still, that we're a ways away from knowing that that idea is wrong. But anyway. 
Yeah, well, you know how it goes with supersymmetry. Like, uh, there, there are very many models, and you can always make up something more complicated. Uh, it's like the, the story with string theory, right? You can always fudge something, you can always add something, and so on. But it's certainly the case that that all the simple models that people looked at, um, that they said should be easily discovery at the LHC because naturalness have just been ruled out. And yes, you can you can always make up more complicated models. You can make up more complicated criteria of naturalness. And, you know, <laughs> theorists are really, really inventive if they want to make a point, uh, if they want to make an argument, if they want to come to a particular conclusion, they will find a way to get there somehow. And I'm super not impressed uh, by all of this. But it's certainly true. And I have all the quotes in my book and on my blog and oh, everything yeah. Yeah. that for decades, um, they said, we'll see it immediately. It, it will be right in your face uh, and so on. And it just hasn't happened. And so sure. um, the the arguments from naturalness that people have made for a long time are just definitely wrong. Um, and at the very least, you'll have to come up with a more complicated uh, notion of naturalness. But but maybe uh, if I can bring this in, the issue with your with your argument about the unlikely cancellation is in the probability. You know, you you um, have to quantify this probability. You have to ask, how do I know that this was actually unlikely? To which the answer is, you don't know because these are constants of nature. What, what does it even mean to talk about the probability of getting a different constant of nature? Like it's just... You know, it's not something that science can say anything about. Well, it's true. It's a, and I've written about this. It's very hard to do probabilities if you don't know the, what's called the phase space. If you don't know the, the the set of possibilities, then you can't accurately determine probabilities. One of the problems of any time you hear someone estimate the probability there's life on other planets, you can generally assume they don't know what they're they're just pulling the number out of their hat or some other place, um, and. Uh, uh, because we don't know the different possibilities for life. And, and, and so it's very hard. Um, uh, yeah, but on the other hand, to, to be the, continue to be the devil's advocate, and I will do that for the moment, if you assume any kind of normal phase space arguments, if there is a possibility, a, a range of probabilities, this seems very unlikely. But you're absolutely right. It's a guess. And the guess can be wrong because we don't know. We don't. You can't do. You can't know the probabilities unless you have an underlying theory. So to guess that the underlying theory must have a property based on probabilities you don't know is suspicious. But it's one way of proceeding, at least. Um, and yeah, I mean, you you just uh, tweaked in the the word reasonable reasonable probability distribution. You know, where I would ask, well, where do you take reasonable from? This is just another word to say natural. Uh, and uh, well, Reggie. Well, yeah, yeah, no, you're well, right. It's, it doesn't even it's have just, to be continuous. But uh, it, what what happens always is that you put you put in a number somewhere, and you you have a width that's kind of uh, similar to um, the Planck energy uh, or something like this. And now you now you've put in a number, and if you if you put in that number, that's what you get out, and then it comes out to be unlikely and it comes out to be unnatural uh, and that's what people have been doing but of course you can put in a different number and then that other number will come out so it's just it's a circular argument well yeah i mean i guess when you're looking for new, when you're thinking about new physics you're guided by something and i'm not and i want to get back to whether you're guided by beauty or not because I, I found that choice of words interesting but let me ask before i get there because people have asked me this question about god what would it, what would it take for you to believe in god and I say, well, if I looked up and I saw the stars realign and in, in uh, 
in Sanskrit or whatever, or Aramaic, they said, I am here, I might begin to suspect there's something to the whole thing. But let me ask you this. If if at the Large Hadron Collider or, the, or a next generation collider, if there's ever one built, particles are discovered and maybe even supersymmetric particles, then will you, will you come back and say, oh yeah, the idea was right? Well, the, the idea of supersymmetry, uh, I, I would of course say was right, you know, if they've discovered it, but yeah. the argument from naturalness would still be unscientific. You know, that's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's a property of the argument. Now you can say it may be that the argument for why they should found it was wrong, but they found it nevertheless. <laughs> I mean, this, this can always happen, you know, there's this. No, no, but I, let me, uh, let me be more clear. Instead of the argument or people saying, or what, what's social fads, ma mathematically, if supersymmetric, let's just say supersymmetric particles are discovered for, again, for the listeners or viewers, this is one way of, if, if this new symmetry of nature exists and it, at some fundamental scale, but we don't observe it, and the amount by which we don't observe it is comparable to the energies of the weak scale, then then you can show mathematically that the effects of what these dangerous virtual particles will go away. And so what I'm asking you is, if we saw supersymmetry at this scale, then it would tell us, that at least in conventional elementary quantum field theory, it would tell us that the mathematical problem that was a problem uh, that 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 uh, for naturalness would mathematically go away and therefore be solved. I mean that is true mathematically, right? No, and if it's supersymmetry not. Is there, there, math mathematically, there is no problem. You you can always you know sub subtract this constant and be done with it. I mean this uh, is how people make predictions for the LHC, right? So I mean the theory works perfectly fine. What's the problem supposed to be? Well, okay, but if if we discover supersymmetry, then there are particles beyond the standard model, and it would tell you that worries about that. It would tell you that if you calculate the effects of the of heavier particles, those effects will go away. I mean, that's a property of supersymmetry as a theory that the effects of high, higher energy modes, if supersymmetry is a fundamental symmetry of nature, will will go away. I was going to say will naturally go away, but I didn't want to provoke you. But but it will go away. So that would be mathematically true, correct? Well, <laughs> I don't think that what you mean by effect is what most people mean by effect. Um, okay. Usually, you would think it's something observable, but the whole point about these things is that you don't observe them. So, what you're trying to say is that if you calculate these corrections with supersymmetry, you get this cancellation automatically. You you don't to a certain degree because it depends on the mass, yeah. uh, right? This is why it's important that the, the masses of these particles are actually in the range of the of the Large Hadron yeah. Collider, and the heavier they are, um, the less well, this automatic cancellation works. So, so you're, you're left with another term that would make a contribution, which is why this whole naturalist problem has now come back, because we've already ruled out the range where it would, would have worked comfortably. But if it, but we, okay, at least we agree that if, they, if it were discovered, then there would be an automatic cancellation, whether you call that naturalness or not. Of course, I mean, that's just be an a, yeah, that's, that's math. Just a technical we, thing. And you and I agree the math, the math works, at least. Um, but let's, but is it beautiful? So, and I want to come back to beauty because I was flabbergasted in a sense 
My dog doesn't like it either. Um, he's barking. But um, I was flabbergasted in some sense by the use of beauty because I would say I understand in having read your book and, and, and that and have talked to you as well where you're coming from here that people are using some vague notion which is not well defined to describe something and and and, and maybe lead us down a, a rabbit hole and i and i'm quite sympathetic to that but i will say in my 40 odd years of being a physicist i don't know if i've ever heard the term beauty mentioned directly in a scientific conference i i suspect that everyone who's there's no doubt that everyone who's working on physics models at some point convinces themselves that that model is beautiful, even if all their colleagues think it's ugly. Because it, otherwise, it's hard to motivate spending hours, days, years working on, on a mathematical idea unless you somehow convince yourself there's something attractive about it. So that, that's not necessarily a bad thing because everyone, you know, needs to have some motivation to what they do. But I've, I haven't heard... I mean, but but precisely because beauty isn't really well defined, I haven't really heard it mentioned in physics meetings per se. So I'm wondering why. What, I want to ask you. It's a provocative way of asking you why you focus on on sort of beauty in your book. Be, because I think that's where it comes from. Um, you're perfectly right. What what happened is. Physicists use these criteria of naturalness and also simplicity. If you think of uh, grand unification, you know, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be so much simpler if it was one big group and it would be broken down, blah, 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 that kind of thing. A similar thing for um, theories of everything. Um, and th they will not, of course, in their papers say, and now I assume the theory has to be beautiful and therefore this is not how it happens. Uh, instead, they will talk about technical naturalness or they will just start with assuming it has come out of uh, some grand unified group that was broken and that had some consequences uh, and, and so on and so forth. But if you look at the popular science books or if they talk to a general audience, um, that's how they will explain it. Like, why do we believe in string theory? Oh, because it's so elegant. And okay, yeah. yeah, but I, I mean, there, there are lots and lots You're of right. quotes, lots of books yeah. uh, where, where they have title of books. Yeah, and and, sure, and, I, and I think, and, and, and I, I actually think that this is how they really feel. You know, this, this is where it comes from. And, um, you know, at least this is my uh, interpretation. And, you know, I have all these interviews uh, in the book. I, I think there's some truth to it. But I mean, there, there are certainly people who've told me, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't talk about aesthetics and beauty, but those are just generally metaphysical criteria. Um, you know, they're not based on evidence. It's just an assumption that we make um, about how the theories are supposed to work that are not um, based on observations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you could argue that maybe talking about beauty isn't the best thing to do, but they're more general uh, metaphysical criteria. Well, I mean, I guess you were tracking something you saw as, a, as an explanation to the public that you didn't think was a valid one. And I, I'm, I applaud that. And you're absolutely right. I mean, el the elegance is, you know, does, I come from a time where it didn't matter whether the theory was elegant or not. Did it explain, <laughs> did it explain the universe? And that matters a lot more. And unfortunately, we came to a time when there's largely sensory deprivation because there's no data. And suddenly a new criteria comes about, which is called elegance or mathematical beauty. And it, it's a new time in physics. That was a new time in particle physics because, it, because what really determines whether a theory is wonderful is not how beautiful it is mathematically or in any other aesthetic way. 
but does it explain the universe we see and the phenomena we see? And that should always be the governing criteria. And, and in that sense, it's very important to realize that elegance or beauty is completely irrelevant. But it is also important to realize that people, in order to be motivated to work on what they're working on, right there or wrong, they have to find something attractive to it. Otherwise, they tend to, you know, it takes a, it's a thankless, long job. And, and, you know, I'm trying to be generous here. I mean, people who are working on, say, even string theory for 20 years, doing very difficult and well-motivated calculations, let me say, for this, in some cases. In order to be motivated by that, they have to, maybe they convince themselves it's beautiful. And, and, and after the fact, it's inappropriate to say it. But scientists need something, especially theorists, to continue to move move along and and but but there were I, I while I haven't heard beauty discussed as I've heard it once or twice in scientific meetings and I discount it when I hear it. I, there was a very there was a, a model that was uh, people developed back in the days of grand unification, which was designed specifically because of you know to allow you to observe things <laughs> and instead of for any other reason and, and somehow that was a criteria which just seemed crazy. But but. I was intrigued, maybe because you were trying to understand why physicists were to explain things. You chose in this book to basically interview lots of physicists. And I've always thought it's a weird way of thinking of, of trying to understand the world. To, to inter And it's a very eclectic group, I must admit. Uh, I found your choice interesting because there are people of significant accomplishment and there are people of significant non-accomplishment that you that you uh, that you interview and I'm wondering what what caused you to to, to want to do it that way to, to, to decide to sort of do that journalistic uh, sort of if you wish interview approach to understanding what the way physicists think about the world well I was actually when I started writing the book I was not sure what conclusions I would come to uh, I just Which wanted to hear why would people make this argument like um, where were they coming from? Like, why was it important for them? And also trying to understand, like, the sociological dynamics um, that got them thinking this way. And there were certainly many who said things that I hadn't thought about. For example, the point which uh, you just raised, you know, beauty is just something that's important for people to be motivated uh, to work on something. And um, I, I understand this, but I, I, I have to ask you, um, what... What if the fundamental theory of nature is just ugly? Should we just say, okay, we'll give up on it because no one's interested in thinking about it, <laughs> right? So, so to me, this seems even more depressing than... Well, uh, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm confident enough that people will find... In life, people, if people love something, it inevitably becomes beautiful. <laughs> and I suspect it's not too different in science that... that even if it, I mean, the standard model is not pretty in many ways, but it, 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 because it's so remarkable in its, in its comprehensiveness, physicists have come to think of it as, as, as beautiful or, or I, so I guess I, I suspect that if there is an ultimate theory and I'm not convinced there is, in fact, I kind of hope there isn't, um, that whatever comes along, people will eventually, if you look at enough, and once you love it, things become beautiful. It's true for human relationships, and I think it's true for science as well. Would you agree? Yeah, exactly. That, that's what the 
the infamous final sentence in my book is supposed to say. Uh, you know, it, it ends with, it'll, it'll be beautiful. Why? Because when we find it, we will come to find it beautiful. And this has happened repeatedly uh, in, in the history of science, uh, which the philosopher, and now I keep forgetting his name, uh, he made this point prior to me. Um, yeah, and, okay. and so I wanted to give him credit. Uh, and he has several examples, you know, where um, a paradigm change happened. And along with it, scientists changed their conception of beauty. And so so my whole issue with all this talk about naturalness and simplicity and elegance and, and strength theory and so on, um, is that it's, it's backwards. You know, you start with a very specific notion of beauty that you want the underlying theory to have instead of saying let's just get surprised by what we find and then we will we will find beauty in it well except is if is that really does that really allow you to do so i mean you have to have something guiding you i mean if you just say let me be surprised then it's hard to know what's gonna if you're actually involved in the search for new theories saying I want to be surprised well we all we do want to be surprised but there has to be something that's guiding your your work and and hopefully it's based on something that is based on on the real work of physics before you we all build on the shoulders of giants and other people um, and so just uh, being surprised isn't a guide for what to do next right Right, exactly, which is why towards the end of my book, um, I put forward uh, alternatives, you know, instead of thinking about beauty, what, what would be better to do? And um, I mean, that's the obvious thing to say, you should be guided by data, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, right? Uh, but also, we have mathematical consistency. And um, those are the two things that I think, if you look at the history of physics, um, have actually been successful. Like if you look at where has there been a breakthrough, it was either we observed something and then we were looking for an explanation. And that's become more and more difficult because you don't just stumble over things if an experiment takes uh, two decades to build and, and several billion yeah. dollars. Um, yeah. But there were also um, <laughs> very um, good predictions based on mathematical consistency for example the predictions of the higgs itse itself mm. uh, we need the higgs for consistency okay it, it could have been something else you know besides the higgs but the standard model without the higgs just isn't consistent so that uh, doesn't work and there, there are other examples uh, in the history of physics um, for for example um, the old original formulation of quantum mechanics wasn't compatible with mm. special relativity which mm -hmm. led Dirac to develop the Dirac equation and, and, and so on and so forth. And um, it's interesting if, if you look at those breakthroughs that were guided by theoretical predictions, I think they were all based on arguments from consistency. And sometimes, of course, you know, the people who were working on it, Dirac, uh, Einstein and so on, they called it beauty, <laughs> But what they were really going on about uh, was consistency. And so this is why sure. I say we should focus on consistency, uh, not uh, on beauty. Okay. And at the risk of going in a circle, again, putting on the hat, a contrarian hat, some people would say that naturalness is equivalent to mathematical consistency, namely the ability to cancel infinite possible contributions effectively is, math is, is mathematical consistency. And that's why they're guided by it. 
Uh, no, it's just not. Um, I the know you would disagree. Is arguably, well, but it's factually wrong um, because you can perfectly well do mathematically consistent calculations yeah. with the standard model the way that it is. Yeah. Never yeah. mind <laughs> that some physicists don't like it because it's not. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's right with the theory that is. But I, I guess what I'm saying is when people try and look for new theories, they use what may be called naturalness because they say my new theory is the quantum corrections, the virtual corrections produce bad effects. And, and I don't get mathematical consistency in my new theory unless I impose this, this criteria. So I guess that what I'm trying to say is they're, they're trying to create new theories that they view as mathematically consistent using this criteria as a way of automatically canceling bad effects. So I, I mean, you know, I'm just trying to give the, the other side, the rationale for why it doesn't, you're right, the standard model doesn't need it, but if you if you are looking for new physics and you think there's a reason there there might be new physics, maybe that itself is misguided. Uh, but but yeah. I suspect, I suspect even, I suspect uh, when, again, maybe extrapolating from the past is not a good idea, but every time we've opened a new window on the universe, we've generally been surprised, and I like to think that that's going to continue. And therefore, if I look, if I'm trying to develop a new theory and it produces unobservable effects that are not observed, unless I impose this criteria, I might consider that as sort of mathematical consistency. That's the last time I'm going to try and pr provoke no, you with this. But You know, if, if it actually produces effects that are not observed, then that's an inconsistency with observation. <laughs> that's a different thing. Uh, yeah, but also, well, I mean, people have used the argument from naturalness to say that we need a new theory to begin with, whereas you are saying something completely different. You're saying, if I am already convinced that there is a new theory, then I can use the argument from naturalness. But that's not what I'm talking about, because from yeah. starting from the assumption that there has to be a new theory um, doesn't give you an argument for why there has to be a new theory. That doesn't make no, any sense. It doesn't. Absolutely. It's just a, it's just a hypothesis. It's a guess. And and it and it and it's only it's a guess in my case based on 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 history and and my experience of physics and you know we all we guess wrong sometimes so so I don't think there's any more rationale for that than that except there's one thing that one you talk about mathematical consistency but to me and I don't use the term beauty but what what to me one of the most important and I've written about this a lot in my books and other places. One of the biggest developments in physics, which has profoundly changed the way we think of the world, is symmetries. And the fact that essentially all of physics has come down to symmetries. That the, as I like to say it, that the playing field determines the dynamics. That a baseball field would, if the if the baseball, if if there were five bases instead of four, and the symmetry of the field were different, it'd be a very different game. If the if the distance between home plate and first base, again, to assuming Americans here, was one mile long, it would be a very different feel, different game. And, and in some sense, what we've discovered is that the symmetries determine the underlying dynamics. In the case of the most profound symmetry of physics, and, or at least the most useful one, something called gauge symmetry, all of the known forces in nature have this mathematical property called gauge symmetry. So what's come down what's in my mind guided physicists as they're as they're looking to understand fundamental physics 
is this symmetry. Now, you might call that beauty or not, but but I guess I would say that is a, gui a guiding principle that certainly has become important. And I suspect I would be very surprised if it wasn't symmetries that guided us to, the, to new physics. What do you think of that statement? Well, particle physicists have certainly tried it already, uh, right? This, I mean, this is where supersymmetry comes from. Uh, this exactly. is where all the grand unified theory things come from. And, you know, I can only say, well, it didn't work. <laughs> right. Well, it I mean, hasn't worked. No, no, that's a different statement. It hasn't worked yet. You're too young. <laughs> it, it hasn't well, worked yet, but it's sometimes but the fact that it didn't come out easy. And I'll look. I'll, I'll agree with you. I thought for sure. I didn't think the Higgs. I didn't think the LHC would ever measure the Higgs because, frankly, I was suspicious of the Higgs. I thought supersymmetry might be the first thing it would see, and that was wrong. But the fact that it hasn't been seen, maybe because I've lived in and worked in a field where for forty years there weren't really results and maybe we should just be a little more patient and instead of saying it hasn't worked and just say it hasn't worked yet. That's right. Um, so it hasn't worked yet. Um, I certainly think that we should at least learn from this, that the type of theory development that particle physicists have done um, was not particularly successful. Um, and they should be rethinking their methods, which is basically the conclusion of uh, my book. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I'm not opposed to symmetry arguments, certainly not. I mean, as you say, they have been dramatically successful um, because they're basically great ways to simplify um, a theory, just, just as mm. I think this is what Frank uh, Wilczek said, you get a lot out of a little. Um, right. So th this is the great thing about um, gauge symmetry. They 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 do a lot of work for you. It's the same with general relativity. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, people have tried in in the seventies and eighties to move forward to move beyond the standard model using these symmetry arguments, and nothing's come out of it. I mean, other than a lot of papers, uh, which uh, is maybe a not nothing. A lot of papers and PhDs and tenure jobs. Uh, yeah, right. Families. But I mean, no, no deeper understanding um, of yeah. the laws of nature, and but, and I think I mean this is this is evidence that we should pay attention to. I think it's trying to tell us something. Or it may just say that the problem's gotten harder. That the easy, the low-hanging fruit was easily done. I mean, these are hard questions, and they, and we become much more ambitious with the kind of questions we're asking. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised with ambitious questions that it may take a lot longer to solve them. Anyway, that's that, my, that's my, of course right. But I I think you can't move forward if you don't study your mistakes and learn from them. Oh, absolutely, I agree. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to provoke you. There's much I'm sympathetic with, but I think it's important to look at this argument from both sides. But okay, look, I think we've beaten that dead horse enough. Um, I'm a big fan of symmetry, and I think it's an important. When I try and explain to the public, I think it's really important. It's very hard to explain symmetries, as you know, as someone who's who's communicated to the public. Symmetry in popular parlance is something very different than symmetry in physics, um, and and um, and it's a very important and interesting concept. So I spend more and more time. I've spent a lot of time trying to explain it. But now let's talk about, I do want to go back. I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive to your time because I know it's going to be time for you to feed your children soon. Or, and and, and um, I, I, want to, um, I want to come back to a few things about your own thoughts and activities beyond uh, uh, the book. Because I think it was a fun discussion, actually, of illuminating these ideas. I hope you found it fun. Um, uh, 
you say you've moved out of the field of particle physics to dark matter, and it's interesting for me to hear those words because for me, dark matter is part of particle physics. But um, but in particular, I think you're you're strongly, well, I know from having read what, what you've written that you're strongly suspicious of the arguments uh, that dark matter is a new type of elementary particle. And I'm and so let's because I, I completely disagree with you in that regard. Um, so I thought we'd have a little discussion in that area. So what, what's your thinking about dark matter? Well, I, I'm not sure I've ever said that that I think dark matter is not a new type of elementary particle. Um, it, it's a little bit more subtle than that. I, I think that the distinction between particle dark matter and modified gravity is not remotely as clear as some people um, have <laughs> tried to argue it is. So basically, I think what we need is is, is a combination uh, of both. But, um, you know, I guess I ended up working on dark matter because that's kind of the next closest thing you can do when you come from particle physics. You know, I, I actually know a lot of particle physicists who did exactly the same thing. You know, after the, the LHC didn't find supersymmetry, they were like, oh, well, we'll, we'll do dark matter because that's kind of like next door astroparticle physics. And the good thing about dark matter is that at least we do have data. Right. And for me, this is kind of a new thing. It's like really, really exciting. Oh, my God, they have observations. You know, there's data to be analyzed. That's why I started working in dark matter in 1982 for that reason, um, because there was data and it was an, an, an area where you might probe fundamental physics. So I guess it's I guess I'm quite sympathetic. It's been 40 years for me to be working on it. But, but yeah, no, I think that that's I think that's what's driven a lot of. And even and it's not only some string theorists, I even, and not even Sheldon, even Sheldon on Big Bang theory, for a while to dark matter, is because it, in astrophysics that because accelerators weren't providing us with data, the one place that seemed to be providing us with experimental or at least maybe not experimental observational constraints that might probe fundamental physics was the cosmos. And it, it, so for me as a someone who sort of focused on particle astrophysics since the early 80s, for me, that was the idea is that the universe was an experiment done once, but at least the rest is just data analysis. So so that's what motivated you to get into dark matter is, is an area with data. But then some, for some reasons that still surprise me, you somehow found modified gravity um, to be sufficiently attractive to, to begin to think about it. So I want to understand why. Yeah, so I kind of stumbled into this uh, by accident, uh, and and it actually came out of, uh, unlikely as this may sound, out of this book, because um, I wanted to write a little bit about dark matter and modified gravity, uh, but it wasn't something that I was very familiar with. So I talked to Stacey McGorg, who's, you know, been going on about modified gravity for a long time, tried to understand yeah. this better, and I, I ended up... Um, you know, thinking that this cold dark matter hypothesis doesn't work remotely as well as I thought it did. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard all these stories um, from astrophysicists about how there are just some shortcomings in the numerical calculations and sooner or later they'll, they'll figure it out and, and it, it'll all work fine. Uh, but time past and it, it's still a problem you know there's still things that are problems and if you look at modified gravity like the baryonic tully fisher relation um the radial acceleration relation all that kind of thing it just falls out so easily like it's a three-line derivation 
it's it's really hard <laughs> to ignore um, that it just explains a lot from very little. And so well, I think from, from some things, I'm, yeah. Well, let's let's get back. To, I mean, I'm as you, I know, Stacy. As you know, I was the chairman of the physics department where he now in astronomy, the university we now is working in, and um, was familiar with some of the ideas. And I think it's really important to have straw men. But I'm not convinced. I mean, for me, the one area where the need, the evidence for dark matter, which came, of course, from observational evidence, which and Vera Rubin and, and Ford and colleagues, which is now overwhelming. Um, but the real importance is it's not just that, you know, it comes from that area is this understanding that we can't seem to get the structure in the universe that we need uh, if baryons are all there is. And, and I find that the most compelling argument for non-baryonic dark matter. If protons and neutrons are all there is, the quick way of thinking about it is there just simply hasn't been enough time for the Big Bang for galaxies to form. And if I look around me, I notice the galaxies have formed. I'm living in one. And that's a, that's a really fundamental problem. And I in and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm certainly willing to be wrong here, you have to stand on your head. And I'm not convinced that that problem has been can be adequately answered in a modified gravity in any way that isn't in every sense of the word that I would think ugly. So maybe you can <laughs> prove me wrong. Well, so th this is why I went on about this in my book, you know, because yeah. th there are a lot of theorists who discard modified gravity because it's ugly, uh, which I think is not it's not a good argument. But I mean, you know, I, I actually agree with you. You know, it, it's it's really hard to modify general relativity uh, and uh, to get the large-scale st structure work out and, and also with the cosmic microwave background. So, um, so, and this is exactly why, for a long time, I was absolutely not convinced by all this modified gravity stuff. You know, I mean, so this is all well and fine. You know, you can do these kindergarten math derivations and yeah you get out flat rotation curves and and, and baryonic tuli fisher so what right yeah right but but now the thing is that it's just uh, i mean this is just a fact like computationally it's much much easier to get these observed correlations to come out from this model for for, for gravity for for galaxies and um the, the problem is, how do you combine it also with the large-scale structure and the cosmic microwave background? And this is <laughs> why I got so excited when I came across uh, Justin Curry's uh, paper about superfluid dark matter, uh, mm. where they said, well, you can have it both. You can have particle dark matter in the early universe on large scales, uh, and then it can condense in galaxies, and that gives you a force which looks like modified gravity. And at, at this point, it, it, kind of, it kind of becomes very philosophical. You know, if I, if mm. I just give you the Lagrangian, um, is it modified gravity or is it particle dark matter? It, it's very difficult to tell one from mm. the other because in both cases, you add fields to the theory. It's kind of mathematically the same thing. And uh, you have to find some criterion to tell one from the other. And the cr criterion that I've been using is to say, um, well, if the force that acts on the baryon is just the normal gravitational force um, created by this other 
uh, matter, then I call it dark matter. If there's an additional force or if the gravitation force is actually modified so that it's no longer general relativity, I call it modified gravity. So if you look at, to, at it from this perspective, then the superfluid dark matter is actually modified gravity because you have a new force that's mediated by the phonons uh, in the superfluid. And so in, in this kind of scenario, you get the best of both worlds <laughs> together. Uh, maybe. Okay. I guess we could argue that but that, as physicists, but I think I won't in, in this context. I'm not convinced, but I do think probably I, I, another term that Wilczek used once when, when is, is radical conservatism. And, and it seemed to me you will at least one of the things that, that seems attractive besides as far as I can see the absolute need for non-baryonic dark matter to explain the large scale structure of the universe is the fact, and again, it's based on the presumption that there's physics beyond the standard model, which, which I agree with you is a presumption for which there may be, there's certainly not yet any evidence. Well, except maybe neutrino masses give some evidence that there's physics beyond the standard model, which in fact they do in my mind give strong, compelling evidence that there's probably physics beyond the standard model. But every theory we able to invent that goes beyond the standard model, dark matter, some dark matter naturally falls out. And, and again, I, I would have argued in, in the very first book I wrote when you were a baby on dark matter, um, the argument is, well, what, is it just some parochial does dark matter seem strange because of some parochial argument? After all, most of the universe is already invisible. There are a billion photons for every proton in the universe, and most of them were invisible. They were all invisible until 1965, until the cosmic microwave vacuum discovered. They were in our TV sets. One percent of the static in our TV is, is photons of the Big Bang, but we didn't see them, and there's nothing more visible than photons. So if, if there's a billion photons for every proton, well, maybe there's some other particles that, that were also created in the Big Bang that aren't as observable as photons that, and, and are more numerous than protons. It seems to me the most reason, I was going to say the most natural thing, but, 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 but it drops out immediately. And the minute you have any physics beyond the standard model in the uni early universe, you find, if anything, a, a, an embarrassment of riches, a profusion of dark matter candidates. You have to work hard to get rid of most of them. So... I guess, um, you know, I think that when you say that, that, that the certain relations, the, the, the flat rotation curve and Tully-Fish relation drop naturally out of this, I would say, ad hoc model, it seems to me that you can also say that dark matter drops naturally out of particle physics in almost any model you go beyond the standard model. Uh, I, I would totally agree with this. Indeed, that's what I thought for a long time. Uh, being a particle physicist, I thought the obvious explanation for dark matter is that it's some kind of particle. And mm -hmm. uh, yes, most of the standard model extensions have dark matter candidates. And so I, I actually start this way in my talk. Like I used to be a particle physicist. And of course, I thought, mm -hmm. well, it's some kind of particle and then find it. And, 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 and that'll be the end of the story. There'll be a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, but this hasn't happened. Right? They haven't found the damn particle. I mean, this is the one problem. But the other problem is that um, it's really hard to get these correlations um, out of dark matter models. You have to put in a lot of work with your numerical calculation and all your subgrid parameters and so on and so forth. Whereas uh, modified gravity, it just falls out so yeah. easily. Well, I guess and again... I, I keep sorry. thinking it captures some truth that we don't have in the particle dark matter. 
Okay. Well, look, I mean, it's interesting. We'll see. Uh, to me, it does. I don't see it myself, but but I guess, and also, I, I I hate to use this argument that I'm older than you again, but I used to argue that was one of the reasons that dark matter was I was so uh, found it so compelling, cold dark matter. It's because it had been killed so many times by observation, and then it turned out the observations or the numerical simulations were wrong, and I saw two or three times it rise from 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 the ashes of. And it was resurrected, and so so it. I found that I find that more compelling, and I suspect there have been many times when it said when people say, "Well, dark cold dark matter doesn't give you observations for mini clusters or what." what you've got to give whatever it is, and I've been I've been I found it quite remarkable that each time more sophisticated simulations were done, in general, those problems went away. We'll see. But we'll see. Yeah, it's like what what you like about dark matter is exactly what you don't like about string theory, right? That every time it's been ruled out, they found a way to make it work. After all, well, it's never been ruled out because it never makes any predictions. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, but you no. Know, so I think it's different. I think string theory has kept redefining itself. Well, no, look. To be honest, it's gone in the direction of the mathematics and new, and it's become clear that it's a much more complicated theory than anyone thought of before. And so, um, you know, people move in different directions. I'm going to be generous to, to string theorists. Sure, you know, the realization that strings themselves may be a, not a particularly relevant, important part of string theory, it, that calling it string theory is probably a misnomer. But it seems to me that at least, at least this one model, the cold dark matter model, with, uh, it seems each time, which at least is testable and, and makes predictions, when the predictions of disagree with observations or numerical simulations on the whole, the observations and the numerical simulations have changed. And I find that interesting. Um, but, but you're right that, um, first of all, we haven't seen it and that there are, there remain problems and puzzles. And I think there always are at the forefront of physics. So I'm a little less, um, I'm a little more generous to, to, I've seen it happen in particle physics where again, even in the standard model, it disagreed with experiment for a while until the having to do with something called neutral currents until the experiments turned out to be wrong. So, so I take a wait and see attitude a little more maybe. And I think it'll, and I, I'm as impatient as anyone. I first proposed dark matter experiments again in 1982, um, both what are called WIMP experiments and axion ones. And, and, you know, I thought they'd be done in 10 years and the whole thing would be over and it's 40 years later and we haven't seen anything, but, but that's why I'm happy the experimentalists are more patient than I am. So we'll see. So about dark matter supposedly making uh, predictions. Well, one thing to say is that um, modified gravity also made predictions that were confirmed uh, by observations. And um, I would recommend that you have a look at the book from the philosopher David Merritt. I think first okay. name, something with D. I'm pretty sure about the Merritt, uh, which is called A Philosophical Approach approach to Mont, which sounds really off-putting, I know. Yeah, but what it's off-putting to me. Basically, what, what he does, I think I think you would appreciate the book because it's very to the point. You know, he doesn't waste a lot of time. Um, he goes through the predictions that cold dark matter has supposedly made and that Mont has made, and he just rates them. You know, how good were they? Um, did they actually uh -huh. agree uh, with the observations? Um, and... <laughs> I might take a look for it. You're right. It, the, yeah. the title of the book is one such that I would never have picked up in my life. This is all those words. Anyway, okay. Um, but, but look, let's let's let me just some quick last questions. 
in the last five minutes or so. What do you think the future particle physics is? <laughs> um, dark, very dark. Um, well, so particle physicists are really in a difficult position right now. I mean, they, they do have the LHC upgrade, which is running now. Um, and that will run for, I don't know, 10 years or more. So, so they will collect a lot of statistics. And uh, I mean, if they're lucky, they find something. And um, then I think the future will be bright. I mean, there's no question about it. But I think the much more likely thing to happen is that they do not find anything new. Um, they will have some anomalies, uh, you know, that they don't really get sorted out, that will have some low statistical significance, and they will try to make a claim that they need a bigger collider. But if you look at the status of the world today, um, you know, with all this pandemic uh, going on and uh, with climate change, it will be really, really hard to get the money together to build this larger collider because we're, we're talking about 20, 40 billion dollars or something, and they would have to start planning pretty soon and uh, digging well, the timeline. they for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's right. always a daunting, daunting, daunting task. Yeah, these... But if it would, so you would say that if 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 no nothing other than anomalies are seen, then the field will end. Oh no, it will certainly not end. Uh, but what's going to happen is that it'll shrink, uh, and I think it's actually healthy um, because it will give people you know time to focus, try to figure out what's the really important thing to do, trying to figure out what went wrong, um, and I mean there's also. And this is something which I personally don't believe, but I think it's a fair question to ask. Like, um, is this something that we should spend a lot of time and money money on at this point in time? Like, is it the right thing to do um, if we're fairly certain that there isn't actually anything to find for 15 orders of magnitude or something like that? Well, let, let me, I used to, yeah, again, I've been sort of thinking, I've always argued that that it's probably not clear, you know, that physicists could go and say, guess what? We found nothing. That's really <laughs> exciting. Bill, that's another accelerator. On the other hand, so let me take again the contrary point of view that $10 billion used to be a lot of money. <laughs> but in the pandemic world, we've seen, you know, trillions. It used to, no, I never th thought I'd hear the word trillions being bandied about so easily. So $10 billion over, over 20 years, by comparison to, even small NASA projects or minimal NASA projects is not a lot of money. I mean, this space shuttle cost a billion dollars each time it w went up, and I don't know why it was ever sent up in the first place. So uh, um, it's not all, I mean, we talk as if it's a lot of money, but it isn't. To be fair, it's ten, if $10 billion is the quanta of, of large accelerators, which it apparently seems to be, $10 billion with a lot of countries over 10 or 20 years is not in the grand scheme of things, a lot of money. And I think we have to remind ourselves of that. Well, you know, everything is relative. Yeah, I guess yeah, yeah. there's a lot of things that you can do with uh, with $10 billion. Oh, yeah. If and, we and, spend and, and, it on I, one thing, it won't be there for another thing. Well, yeah, but that was a dangerous... That's you're, Again, you're, you're young. That's what killed the superconducting supercloud in the United States. The claim that, exactly. hey, we can... But the point is, it's not a zero-sum game. It wasn't as if the money from the Large Hadron Collider was then used to, for other areas of science. That's just not the way, at least in the United States, that's not, not the way funding went. It suddenly, there wasn't suddenly a big pot of money available 
for other things. It was just that the pot of money for the superconducting super collider disappeared. So I think it's we have to be very wary for scientists to start saying, well, if you don't spend it here, it'll be spent there, because I don't think that's the way government funding of science is spent. So, so I, I caution you from thinking about that. I do agree we have to think, is it worth $10 billion? And, and, if we do, and I strongly believe that we have to make the case as physicists for why it's worth it. And if we don't make the case convincingly, then the public shouldn't spend the money. Because exactly. it, and that's that's that I agree with a hundred percent on. Last question, maybe. What about the future of science? What do you think about ideology and science now? Do you see? Are you? It's. It, do you want to talk about that? We don't have to. But I'm. Um, do you do you see a do you see a bright future um, for science in in the West? Well, I flip back and forth between being very optimistic and being very pessimistic. Um, the reason I'm optimistic is that I personally think we have a lot of exciting things to discover and we're kind of almost there. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, I've been, it, it's been really difficult for me, you know, to, to see how so many particle physicists went down collectively this dead end and ended up believing in these weird things. And I kind of feel like this is like, a group of the most intelligent people on the planet. Like if they can't understand that their interests and their convictions are influenced by people they are constantly in contact with, that they're constantly uh, talking to, that they have this uh, social reinforcement, then I don't think that the rest of mankind uh, will see that this is actually a problem that we need uh, to work on. And of course, this is something which is affecting all of science, you know, all these problems with academia, where does the funding go? Uh, I just think it's extremely inefficient. You know, we're throwing a lot of money um, at things uselessly that we kind of know won't go anywhere. And at this point, it's not so much particle physics, but, you know, it's all this quantum everything mm -hmm. um, and, and, and artificial intelligence, machine learning mm -hmm. and, and, and all that kind of thing. And there are some good things in there, but I think the vast majority of this stuff is just, you know, it's pretty much a waste of money and it's, it's a problem. And I, I think it's something that um, scientists need to sort out, but I see no indication that it's going to happen. Okay. Well, you're even more pessimistic than me in that regard. I was thinking not so much of, but that's an interesting question. But I was also thinking about the question of, uh, you hit one kind of ideology, namely the beauty ideology or whatever you want to call it. I'm thinking of the other. I think the, the fact that increasingly scientists are not able to ask questions uh, because of sociological issues and, and that the, the ability to openly question, at least in the West, seems to be, as far as I can see, um, under attack in many places. And I'm, I'm deeply concerned about that for the future of science. Do you think I'm just uh, overly concerned or do you see that as a problem? Well, it's certainly a problem. It, it seems to me there are just certain questions you can't really talk about uh, because people will immediately start shouting at you that you're a bad person for even asking the question. And that's a it's a big, big problem. And it, it concerns me a lot that most scientists seem to just look away from what's happening. They're like, it's not my problem, somebody else's problem. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and that, that, that worries me a lot, yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, I think it's natural. Most people, scientists like to keep their heads down and just keep working on what they're working on. And 
and if you put your head up into the fray, you 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 risk a great deal. So I can understand it, although I don't necessarily condone it. But well, look, uh, thanks for letting me be provocative and contrary, and I really, um, you know, as I think you're sensitive, I, I think there's uh, we, we agree on a lot, and I think it's important to have these discussions so people see where we're coming from. And I really appreciate you um, allowing me to. Uh, to provoke, and I always do enjoy talking to you, Sabina. So I hope you had a good time. Yeah, thanks for the question, which uh, really got me to think about all of this again. Good. Okay. You take care, and uh, we'll see you again. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. You can continue the discussion with us on social media and gain access to exclusive bonus content by supporting us through Patreon. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.